You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. Now we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. All right. Good morning, Grace Point. How we doing? Good. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 6. We're back in the Gospel of John this week. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free as you leave here today to swing by Centerpoint. We have free Bibles there, both in English and in Spanish. And so that, we want that to be one of those additional gifts to you if you don't have a Bible. In the meantime, you can follow along by checking out the side screen here. Most of the scriptures, pictures, things we're going to be talking about, they're going to be up there today. So you can follow along up there. Uh, one quick announcement as before we dive in is this. One of the things that I absolutely love about this church is we have a lot of kids. Last week, we had 40 to 45 kids, fifth grade and under, in our children's ministry here, which is absolutely incredible. But one of the things we need are we need more people to sign up to serve back there. And I want you to know this, that some people, they say, well, I don't want to serve back there. I don't want to miss worship. But what we know from Scripture is that serving is, in fact, worship. And so if you want to continue to worship God through serving, we would like to invite you to go back there, help with our kids' areas. We got some preschool uh, leaders uh, that sometimes they don't get to come into a gathering, if that makes sense. And so just help them out. We love the kids. And I will tell you this, what we do back there is not childcare. Those kids are discipled and they are discipling people in their homes and their families. I don't know about you, but my parents started going to church because I did, right? God used kids to really make an impact in people's lives. So if you want to serve, uh, help us out there. That would be absolutely awesome. Cool. Well, like I said, we're back in the Gospel of John, and we've called the series The Book of John That You May Believe. And the reason we did that is because this is John's entire point of the book. He tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, that he has come to what? That Jesus has come to give life. Absolutely, that's John 10. But John 20 tells us that John wrote down this entire book so that you and I would believe in Jesus. And this morning, what John is going to do is he's going to begin to show us how everyday things and people in his gospel point to something so much greater than themselves. You and I know this. Take, for instance, a rose. How many of you guys have ever seen a rose before? A rose is a flower, right? That's what we know it as. But a rose is not just merely a flower, is it? It oftentimes points to something so much greater than what it is. And what is that? Love. You see, I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room who has given a rose to somebody that I wanted them to know that I love them. And over the years, I've discovered that roses and colors, like their different colors can mean different things. So for instance, if you get a red rose, it means love. If you get a white rose, it means what? Purity. If you give a yellow rose, it means friendship. If you get an orange rose, it means desire. And I have learned you've got to be very careful about what color you give because you do not want to be mistaken, right? Some of us in here, we have seen something as common as a signature. You see, a signature is really nothing more than ink on a page. But I will tell you this, the contents around that signature oftentimes point that signature to something so much greater. For instance, when I signed for my house, what did I do? I signed that I would pay for that house. When I signed for my student loans, what did I do? I committed with my signature. I couldn't just go in and say, hey, that's just ink on a page, no big deal. They'd say, no, no, no. This points to something greater and you better pay, right? Others of us in this room, we have seen these things called fireworks. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love fireworks. Being from Kentucky, we like to blow things up. 
okay? And we can blow things up any day of the week, but there are certain times of the year in which a firework's not just a firework, but it's pointing at something so much greater. For instance, July 4th. You blow these up on July 4th, what are you talking about? Freedom, right? You blow these up on New Year, what are you pointing to? Fresh starts. But then most of us in this room, we have seen this right here. And this is a wedding ring. You see, a wedding ring is really just nothing but a piece of metal on your finger. But what does that wedding ring point to? Something so much greater. And if my wife was in this room right now, she'd say, yes, it does, right? It points to a commitment and a covenant I made with her. Now, this ring, it's not only important that it's on my hand, but it also is important that it's on a specific finger. Because if I take this ring off and I put it on my pinky or I put it on my thumb, it doesn't quite mean the same thing. But this ring, when it's on this, it points to everyone in this room and everyone in this world that I am committed to my wife, Jess. You see, over the next few weeks, as we dive back into this Gospel of John, what we're going to see is particular objects, people, and festivals point to something so much greater than themselves. And what John wants to do for you and me this morning is to show us how Moses, as well as bread, point to something so much greater. You see, in John chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. It says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After this, what is this after? Well, it's after chapters 1 through 5. What happened in chapters 1 through 5? That's a great question. We'll talk about it here in a second. But what is important to see is that this miracle we're about to look at, this sign of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, which is honestly more than that, what is interesting is that this is the only miracle of Jesus that is in all four Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and as we see, it's in John. And in the Gospel of Mark, we see a lot more details provided about what was going on here. Check it out. Mark 6, verse 30, it says this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, verse 31. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Some of us should underline that. We need to rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. So many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. You see, in the Gospel of John, what we have been seeing since chapter 1 is Jesus' fame has been growing and growing and growing. He has done some absolutely amazing things. He has turned water into wine. He has cleared a temple. He has healed a Roman official's son from distance. He didn't go to the town of the Roman official's son. He stood where he was, miles away, and he said, your boy's going to be well. And what happened? The boy was well. We see that Jesus healed an invalid, a man who was not able to walk for 30 years. He healed him. But what Mark tells us is this. Not only was Jesus' fame growing, but so were his disciples' fame because they were teaching and healing as well. Needless to say, these crowds grew and grew and grew, and they grew so much that Jesus and his disciples had no opportunity to sit down to even have a snack. It was busy. How many of you in this room have ever been that busy? So busy, you didn't even have an opportunity to sit down and eat. I'm sure I'm not the only one in here who has blown past lunch, blown past breakfast, blown past the snacks in between, only to get home and go, I realize I haven't eaten today because I've been so busy. I've heard my wife say this as I've come home, especially over the summer with three kids at home. She'll say, I've been so busy today, I haven't even sat down to eat. And so here's Jesus. His disciples are hungry. He's hungry. They're serving all these people. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't look at them and go, you slackers, pick it up. 
Hey, we got a quota to meet here today. Look at all these people. How are we going to get pick it up? No, Jesus doesn't say that. What does Jesus do? He said, boys, let's go take a break. Let's take a break. You've got to love that. You see, Jesus is fully God. Yes and amen. He is fully God, but he's also fully God in what? A human bod. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry, just like his disciples and just like you and me. One theologian I was reading this week said it was not a sin for them to take a brief sabbatical. It would have been a sin for them not to. (laughs) What you and I need to hear joyfully this morning is you are not the creator. You are a creature. And God has made you a creature. He's made you finite and he's made you with limits joyfully. Some of us in this room were so exhaustive because we were trying to take a position you and I were never made for. So possibly the best thing you could do this morning is just go home and take a nap. And guess what? Jesus is not going to smite you if you do. He's not going to do it. Yet the crowds wouldn't leave Jesus and his disciples alone. And Mark tells us that the crowds actually ran after Jesus and his disciples when they got in a boat. Think about that. They get in a boat to go across the lake, and there's so many people there, and somebody just yells out, Jesus went across the lake, and the entire crowd sprints, right? We need them on our Olympic teams. Like, they are fast. They get there. But John tells us why they ran. Look at verses 2 and 4. It says, And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. You see, the text implies that the crowds kept following Jesus, and he couldn't shake them, kind of like some people try to shake the paparazzi. But the crowds kept coming. And because Jesus kept doing continuous signs, and they desired more benefits of his power. And what were Jesus' signs? What was he doing? He was healing the sick. And when people who were ill saw that, they go, you know what? I want to get in on that. I want some of that power. I want that in my life. Now, when I was in high school, we'll call this kid Sam, because I don't know where he is in the world. And if he happens to listen to this podcast, he's going to be like, you're talking about me. But there was this kid my freshman year named Sam. We'll just call him Sam, okay? Now, Sam, he wasn't the most popular kid, but people liked to hang out with Sam. Why? Because his dad owned a Dairy Queen. And so when you hung out with Sam and you went into the Dairy Queen, guess what you got for free? Dilly bars. And I'll never forget the day that Sam and his father gave us a ride home from school. We roll into the Dairy Queen. I watch him go in. I'm just in my mind going, Dilly bars. Like, we're going to get one, right? Sam's dad walks back out, and all he has is a dilly bar for him and for Sam. My brother and I sat in the back. How rude, right? Maybe I should tell his name. We can all email him. Like, why did you give Travis a dilly bar? But, but, like, but that's what it was. But why did I hang out with him? Not because I wanted him. I didn't want to be his friend. I just wanted his stuff. I wanted the benefits, right? I wanted the ice cream. Well, in the same way, the, this, these people who are following Jesus, they don't want Jesus, When you look in the Gospel of John, it says people believed in the signs. You look in John chapter 2, Jesus had performed some signs, and it says people believed in his name. We think that's trust, that they're loving Jesus, but what does it say in John chapter 2? Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of man. These people wanted Jesus' things, but they didn't want Jesus himself. Matthew Henry, who's an old Bible commentator, says this, Jesus' miracles drew many after him. That, that were not effectually drawn to him. What does he mean? They liked his stuff, but they didn't want him. 
But don't miss what John also says in this verse. He tells us that this has taken place during a very important time within Jewish history. And what is that? The Passover. You see, the Passover was a meal that was celebrated annually, and it pointed back to a story in the book of Exodus, probably the greatest event within Israel's history. You see, the Exodus is talking about the time in which God invaded and came into his people's lives. 400 years, the Israelite people were living under the tyranny of Pharaoh in Egyptian slavery. And God heard their cry. And what did he do? He raised up a prophet named Moses. And he sent that prophet into the people, to Egypt. And through him, he performed 10 miraculous plagues. With the final plague being what? The death of the firstborn son in all of, Israel, or in all of Egypt. Now in Exodus chapter 12, God is gracious to his people. And he tells them, how they can be exempt, how they can be spared of this death. And he says, you need to take a lamb, a lamb that is one year old, unblemished. You need to sacrifice that lamb. And before you eat it, which I think is interesting he says that because if you know me, my wife's Greek, I love lamb. I've just been like, cool, let's eat this thing. But, But before they eat it, they are to take the blood of that lamb and they are to put that on the doorpost. And then afterwards, they're to eat it. And God says, when I come through, to execute this plague, to execute this this judgment on Egypt, when I see the blood on the doorpost, I will what? Pass over your home. Notice, it took the death of a what? A lamb to spare the son. And in the very beginning, what does John the Baptist say when Jesus comes walking? The lamb of God who does what? To take away the sins of the world. You see, the lamb in Exodus was to point to something greater that is to come, And his name is Jesus. Now Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And great crowds are following him. He takes them all through the wilderness. And as he does, God continues to use him to perform signs. Some of us know that when Pharaoh let the people go, finally he regretted it. And so what did he do? He sent an army after him, right? And so here they come in chariots and war. And the people are basically trapped by the Red Sea. And God says, raise up your staff. And he parts the Red Sea and the people walk through on dry land. When the people were in the wilderness and they were starving, God miraculously provided by telling Moses, who honestly went to God and complained. He said, look at these people. They're going to kill me. Are you going to give them something to eat? And God says, every single morning when you wake up, you're going to see I'm a good, gracious God who provides. You're going to have this bread-like substance on the ground called manna. It tastes like honey. And when they were thirsty, he told Moses to strike a rock. And what happened? Water miraculously flowed from a rock. And then we see in Exodus that Moses goes up on a mountain and he sits down and he gets the law of God. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said that after the exodus, another prophet like him would come. And listen to what he says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen. You see, Moses reveals that another prophet is coming and he commands the people to what? To listen to him. You see, Jesus is like Moses. He's like Moses, but he is greater than Moses. It's the Passover and people are looking at Jesus and they know this story of Moses and they're going, hey, he's performing signs like Moses. Hey, he's got large crowds following him like Moses. Hey, he's healing, he's providing like Moses. And guess what? He sits down and he teaches like Moses. You can only imagine the excitement of the people. What did Moses free them from? Egypt. And what are they suffering under? Roman oppression. 
And so they're thinking to themselves, could this Jesus be Moses 2.0 who's come to free us from Rome? You see, Jesus is like Moses, but he's also greater. The people thought that Jesus was nothing more than a Moses 2.0. They thought of him as a prettier rose, if you will. They thought of him as a shinier ring. They thought of him as a greater firework. But Jesus has not come just to merely free them from Roman oppression. Moses freed them from Egyptian oppression, but Jesus has come to free them as well as you and me from something so much greater that we are captive to. And what is that? It's sin. Sin in our lives. And this miracle that he's about to perform is to show us that, that he has come to be even greater than Moses. You see, as Jesus' disciples sit down to take a break, they look up and they see the crowds coming. Look at verse 5. It says this, lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him. Mark, again, is helpful here. Listen to what Mark says. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I don't know about you, but if I've been working all day, and I'm serving people, and the next thing I know, I see a crowd coming towards me, I'm probably getting back in the boat and going across the other way, right? But look at Jesus here. What does he have? He has compassion. And that word compassion is so significant. It's not just empathy, but it actually implies that Jesus was literally sick to his stomach. He looked at this crowd. He had so much compassion for them, so much love for them, that he was actually over, probably holding his stomach, because the love he had for them was a love that hurts. And why does he feel this way? Well, Mark tells us why. Because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And if you know anything about sheep, Sheep that don't have a shepherd oftentimes end up in trouble, and they end up dead. This past week, I was reading this article of some shepherds in Turkey who decided to take a break to eat breakfast. As they did, the sheep began to wander that they were watching. One of them walked off a cliff. All 1,499 other sheep walked off the cliff too. 400 of them died. The rest survived because the 400 broke their fall. It was estimated that what that mistake cost was those farmers $75,000. And when I read this story to my wife, she goes, that was one expensive breakfast. And I went, yes, it was. You see, Jesus knows the harm these people could be facing. For their shepherds, the religious leaders, weren't doing their job. And so what does Jesus do? He teaches them, and he teaches them for a long time, which shows us how malnourished they were. You see... There were questions, but no answers. There was distress, but no relief. There were tears, but no consolation. And sins, but no forgiveness. And Mark goes on to tell us that Jesus' disciples were kind of like those shepherds eating breakfast. They were kind of like those religious leaders who really didn't care. Listen to what else it says in Mark chapter 6. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now Jesus taught into, late into the evening and the disciples wanted to get rid of the crowds because they had become hangry. And you know what it means to become hangry, right? You're hungry and you're angry and we just made up a word. It's probably be in the dictionary in a couple, couple years, to be honest with you, because there's certain words that are in there like ginormous. Or is that what it is from Elf? Basically, Elf got a word in the dictionary. That's way off topic, but you can, you can look it up for yourself. So hangry is probably going to be in the dictionary. But we know what hangry means. You're hungry and you're angry. And you're just not the same when you're hungry and you're angry. 
And so listen to what they do. Jesus says, don't send them away. You do something about it. Verse five, or verse six, or chapter six, verse five. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. It's almost if Philip looks to Jesus or Jesus looks to Philip and he says, hey guys, don't send them away. I want you to do something about it. I want you to find this bread. Go get them something to eat. Now what John does is he tells us that what is about to happen is no surprise to Jesus because why did Jesus do this? To test Philip. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. But Philip the mathematician quickly adds the numbers up in his mind and he says, hey, a half a year's worth of wages or eight months worth of wages is not enough to buy these people food. It's almost as if he looks to Jesus and goes, Jesus, you're insane. How in the world are we going to feed all these people? We don't have the money, and even if we did, we could not get the food here in time. Now, the thing I think we're supposed to focus on here is this guy Philip and his unbelief. You see, chapters 1 through 5, where has Philip been? He's been with Jesus. He has seen Jesus turn water into wine. He realized, hey, reproducing food and drink is kind of on his resume, right? He's seen Jesus heal a man. He's seen Jesus clear the temple. He has seen Jesus heal a man who had been an invalid for 30 years. Yet Philip thinks, hey, if feeding these people has to be, it's up to me. And he didn't expect Jesus to do anything. He expected him to handle it in his own might and power. And since human ingenuity couldn't fix this, what does Philip do? He gives up. He's like, no, not going to happen. But we see that Philip's not the only disciple that tries to do something, but also this guy named Andrew, who is Peter's brother. Listen to what he does. It's a long shot, but listen to what he does. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they to so many? I don't know what happened, but in our day and age, if a grown man comes running back with some kid's lunch with that kid, he's probably going to end up on the news. But there are thousands of people out in this field, and all of a sudden, Andrew somehow finds this one boy who's got five barley loaves and two fish, and he brings them to Jesus. Now, when you and I hear about five barley loaves, we might be thinking of sweet-smelling big loaves of bread, but that's not the case at all. Five barley loaves was the bread of the poor. Think of a biscuit or a cracker, and you kind of got the idea. And when we read about two fish, these weren't like Alaskan king salmon. These were more like pickled sardines. And so here comes this young boy with Andrew, and he's like, Jesus, this is all I can find. This is it. We're going to see here in a second, there's about 5,000 people seated in this field according to this number, but what we know from this culture is they only count men. We see there's a boy there, which means there's a mom. Many biblical commentators estimate there could have been anywhere from 20 to 25,000 people here. And, and Andrew, like Philip, comes up to Jesus and says, hey, we got five crackers, we got two fish. I've seen Lunchables bigger than this. But let's see what happens. Yet this is where we see Jesus show that he's more than meets the eye. And I just quoted Transformers. He isn't merely a 2.0 Moses. He's greater. Listen. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, which basically just shows you eyewitness testimony. Why is that important? Unless it's somebody saw it and they wrote it in, okay? There's just a little apologetic thing. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 
Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they what? Wanted. You see, Jesus has the people sit down. He says a simple prayer. He doesn't complain like Moses. He doesn't complain like Moses. He just says a simple prayer. And then what does he do? Boys, go hand out the materials. And what do they do? Handing out bread, handing out fish. It's expanding. What is Jesus doing in this text? He's doing the very works of God in the Old Testament. You see, he's not just a greater Moses who has come, a Moses 2.0 with a better smile or whatever. But rather, he is greater than Moses because he is God in a human body who's come to do the very works of God we see in the Old Testament. That's what he's doing here. And it says in the text, the people ate as much as they wanted. That's awesome. When our family moved back here from Utah about five years ago, my kids were so excited. We moved very close to the Aliante Casino. Now, why were they excited? Because they love the casino and love to play? No. What do my kids, from the time they were little, Las Vegas born, what do they know the casino as? Not the casino, but the what? Buffet. My daughters and my son were so excited because when we go to the buffet, what do they get to do? Eat as much as they want. They go immediately to the donuts, then to the waffles, back to the donuts. And then for breakfast, you can go up there and get soft serve ice cream. Sometimes, some casinos, you can get gelato, right? And so they come back and they're eating this, eating as much as they want. These people ate as much as they wanted. And here's what you got to see. Jesus isn't stingy. He didn't cut them off. He said, eat as much as you want. I imagine there was a third helping, a fourth helping, like a buffet. Nobody's telling them to stop. And because we know what these elements are of barley bread and pickled fish, we know these are extremely poor people that probably had the best lunch they've ever had in their life. Now, if you're thinking back to Moses, you might notice a slight difference. And what is that? When Moses gave manna, manna was only done for a day. You couldn't store up as much as you want. You could do that on the Sabbath. You could store up two days, but you couldn't eat as much as you want. Yet Jesus allowed these people just to keep eating and eating and eating. And what does that mean? That with Jesus, there's no limitation. You see, Moses has run out. But with Jesus, there is abundance and abundance and abundance. That's what's going on here. And not only did they eat what they wanted, but there were leftovers too. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, And when they eat, had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. You see, collecting leftovers was a Jewish custom. Leftovers are a good thing. And anything that was about the size of a marble was picked up and it was gathered and it was stored. And so what do his 12 disciples do? They gather up baskets and they go around the crowd and each of them collect over, like leftovers all the way up to the top of the basket to the very brim. You see, with Jesus, there's abundance and he, what he provides never runs out. It never runs dry. And once the people experience this, they begin to place their wants and desires upon Jesus. Because think about it. What are they thinking? They want his goods, but they don't want him. They want his things, but they don't want him in their lives. And so listen to what John tells us that the people tried to do once they see Jesus do this miraculous thing. Listen. It says, when the people, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, 
This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. They're thinking back to Deuteronomy 18. Moses said he was going to come, and look at this guy. We didn't even complain. And he just gave. And it wasn't like he was just an instrument God used. He did it. And so what would you assume? You're sitting there. You've seen this guy turn water into wine. You've seen this guy heal the sick. And you've seen this guy make the best buffet lunch you've ever had. You're going to make this guy king. And so look at verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and make him Uh, take him by force and make him king, what did Jesus do? He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. You see, what the people wanted to do was make Jesus a little K earthly king. Moses freed them from Egypt and they concluded that Jesus must come into this world to free them from Rome. And think about this too. Just like I said, the guy heals the sick and he can make a buffet. Who's gonna stop him? You see, for them, Jesus was nothing more than a puppet They see him as one who has come to do their will, not his will. Yet Jesus will have nothing to do with it. What we have to understand, especially as we head into another political season, is that Jesus' kingdom is not a democracy. It's not like Jesus is on the TV campaigning, saying, if you elect me, all your wildest dreams will come true. He is not saying, I've come to do your agenda. I've come to do what you want. But rather, Jesus' kingdom is not a democracy. It's a monarchy where King Jesus is on his throne. And he's ruling and reigning. And we don't elect him to that throne. But rather, what does he do? He elects us into his kingdom. And when we come into his kingdom, we do his agenda. We do his will. And I will tell you this. Jesus is a good king. We live in a culture and a society where we are suspicious of authority. We reject it at every moment's notice from the womb. How do I know this? Because I was a kid and I have kids. Yet the authority of Jesus in your life is not to kill your joy, but to increase your joy. And because he is a good king and he comes and he welcomes us into his kingdom, we joyfully want to do his will. Because if you know who you are before Jesus, you're not all that in a bag of chips, right? Mr. Rogers said you're special, okay? You are special. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. But the biblical story is this, that though you were fearfully and wonderfully made and you were made a creature who is to worship your creator, you and I willfully and voluntarily rejected that creator and rebelled against him and did what we want trying to make our kingdoms in hostility towards his. And the scripture is very, very clear in Romans 5 that you and I are sinners. We are enemies of God. Ephesians 2 says we're dead and we're rebellious. Nobody's going to the pound and taking that puppy home. Yet God in his grace looked at the creation that willfully and voluntarily rejected him and he came on a rescue mission, sending his son into this world to do what you and I can never do. And that is to live the life we were meant to live, to die the death we were meant to die, and to rise again so that his loving rule and reign will come into our lives to bring us joyfully back to him as a son or daughter of the king. You see, it's not just about bread. We're going to see here in a few weeks, Jesus hasn't come to bring bread. He has come to be bread, to be the true nourishment that you and I need. 
You see, Jesus is not just a rose. He's the greater rose. Jesus comes in love. And Jesus is a signature, but he's not just a signature. He's a great signature. Why? Because when I signed on that house for my, or when I signed on that contract for my house, what did I do? I incurred a debt. Yet what did Jesus do in his coming? He signed on a contract for your debt. And he died for it. You see, Jesus is the greater firework, if you will. The reason I spent all that time talking about the desperate situation we're in before God, because a firework shines the brightest against what? A really dark background. You want the lights out, and then you see that firework, and you see King Jesus. When you understand your desperate situation, and you look to him in all of his glory, it's so magnificent. And I will tell you this, Jesus is the greater ring. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Those who are in my hand, I will never let go of. It's not like right now when Jesus saves you, you have to worry about if he's going to be committed to you until the very end of the age. Because the Bible opens up with a wedding and it closes with a wedding. And the church is the bride of Christ who Jesus is always faithfully committed to. See, the gospel of John is pointing you and me to the greatest hope for our lives. And it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a person. And his name is what? When in doubt at church, you just say it, Jesus. And you got an A. (laughs) That's what it's about. He hasn't come to be a Moses 2.0. He's come to be a savior. He's come to be a king for your good, for his glory, and for your joy. Let's pray.